From global design practice Hassle, this is Hassle Talks. Hi everyone, welcome back to part two of our epic yarn with First Nations consultant, cultural advisor and storyteller, Kat Rodwell. I'm Hannah Galloway, and I would like to acknowledge and respect the Noongar Wadjuk people and the Wadarung people as the original custodians of the land where we record this yarn. We honour elders past, present and emerging whose knowledge and wisdom has and will ensure the continuation of cultures and traditional practices. So this is part two. If you haven't listened to part one, I very much recommend that you do. It's a really big conversation about listening and about respect and connection, protocols, engagement, loss and the experience of voices and country not being listened to for so long. Kat also identified ways we can all help to reduce the overload traditional owner groups and consultants are feeling. So do go back, check it out. If you're already across it, this episode is where we get into the questions our listeners have sent in. There's some really great pointy stuff here. So let's get back into it. So we, we, we had a series of questions that we we asked uh, through our social media channels before this podcast and recording. And one of the questions was, what do Indigenous people and communities really want to see in our built environment? How do First Nations people want their culture, values, art and knowledge to be translated into architecture? I'd say it's genuine cultural meaningful elements are within the built form. Um, and also elements that contribute to everyone's well-being and health because the buildings and structures become a part of country, make them live as part of country. And we want them to represent community, not the same for everything. We, we don't fit into the same round or square hole. We are all different mob, as I said, so don't presume where one group says, are we like this? The other group's going to be the same. Um, make sure it has a connection to country and it has it, it builds curiosity. It doesn't have to be in your face. Um, as I said, is it that you can see country, smell country, feel country, touch country? Those elements, that's all it has to have, and that's all they're asking for. But mainly they want to know what are you doing on country? What is it you are building on country? How is country going to change? Because once you change country, it affects us deeply. And I always say, you know, plan out the meetings. You, you probably, with me, I only have probably four with the traditional owner groups, the elders, on each project. Because I think after that, it's, it's too much overload. But we always come with purpose as well to say, what is it that you really want to know so that we're not going to, you know, take up too much of their time? Ask questions while you're there. That's why you have facilitators like myself can help that conversation and to draw out what you need to know. But also... You don't have to be that. I call it the Abkia, as I said to you, Ikea. Everyone seems to think you've got to have, you know, all the bits and pieces, all the fang, dang, whisk, you know, whistles, you know, the kid in the candy store. You don't. Listen to the stories of country. 
It doesn't have to always have a massive yarning circle. It doesn't always have to have a totem. It doesn't always have to have, you know, an Aboriginal painting or anything. People are still treading on eggshells about when they're engaging us, what they can and can't do and they're afraid to do, especially when design. And I've had a really good conversation last week with a couple of elders on where you call designing with country is going. And, and and as you say, every conversation and every situation is going to be unique. So never presume that you can have one conversation and reuse that somewhere else. It's when we cannot translate. We we are asking for the privilege of, of, of hearing these stories and showing respect for receiving the sharing of uh, stories and knowledge. We come up with suggestions and we take those back and we uh, we look for, you know, approval on the way that we're translating and, and 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 work through that together. So yeah, yeah. And you want to be able to understand it. I mean, for us people, will, sometimes what you may hear from an elder traditional owner is not necessarily what they're saying. So this is where sometimes where people like myself will come in and say, well, actually, this is what the story or the language is what is being shared with you it's like that great dividing cultures and sometimes language does what you build and the narrative is it easy to understand or is it so far out there they go that doesn't look like a mernong mernong's not blue mernong's yellow we need to be able to understand it as well so it gives respect to culture we're not asking for a lot really so should we should we do one of the pointy ones cat yeah come on let's do it yep this next question from uh, from online, a question about the fetishization of Indigenous culture. The idea that simply because something is rooted in Indigenous culture, that is necessarily good, better or sustainable. How do we acknowledge a culturally safe way that no culture is ever has ever gotten everything right nor ever will do? Ooh. I'm looking at the word and really it's saying... Oh, well, an unreasonable amount of attention really given to Indigenous culture. And the thing that stands out in this question is I say, well, who says we never got it right? Just because it wasn't written down, we're oral traditionalists. And some may argue, well, we did, you know, we did get it right. We lived in harmony. We were sustainable, sustainable farming, sustainable living, you know, we looked after country, we nourished country, we only took what we had to until Captain Crook, we call him, <laughs> and fellow, you know, explorers came along and came onto country and changed country. And then things started to go pear shape, as you would say. That's me being nice. So, I mean, we had law, we managed, we lived in harmony. And, yeah, today, this day and age, maybe we are getting it wrong as a culture in some ways um, because we've lost our cultural ways, cultural elements from the past that have disappeared. Um, we've lost being part of a community sometimes, being misinformed. People make mistakes. So the question is how do we acknowledge it in, cultural safe, in a culturally safe way is, well, we walk together, we work together, and that's how we do it. So no one is perfect. There is no expert. 
we look at the now and how we can resolve or solve things. So when we talk about, you know, our cultural practices, a good example would be uh, we lived off, you know, the land and the waterways, which were, as I said, the giver of life. These days now, because I've lost a lot of that practice, because culture has changed, we now go towards a bit of your way of agriculture. Uh, the next question is, what correlation can we bring between agriculture and native bush agriculture? Um, you know, country was our chemist. It was our hospital. It was our supermarket. And it's really funny how it's all been revived. This bush medicine, bush tuck is being used in a lot of ways now. And it's being used in ways of being farmed agriculturally, which is, is interesting. So that's what I'm saying. The sea asparagus, which is on, I don't know, here, Gunichmara country, where it's now, it, it's, it's very high in certain vitamins and that. And it said, and it does taste like asparagus. It does. And, you know, you need in the saltwater areas. And now we're starting to farm it westernised ways, an indigenous plant though, something that we just used to pick from the waterways, et cetera, that we're farming it sustainably now. So the two cultures are coming together to revive some of our bush medicine, bush tucker, and being able to practice their culture with agriculture and merging them together. So it's using the old ways with the new ways working with country, with the new climate. And that's what I said. It, it's not being un, giving it a reasonable attention. We never had the attention. We weren't allowed to practice culture, but now we can. So it's a hard question, but I love it. I love it. And, and, and I suppose that's uh, it feeds into the idea of, you know, it's good sometimes to have hard conversations and discuss things that are confronting uh, because that's how we understand each other better. Oh, definitely. As I said, we were told, you know, happy about women that say anything. Now we can. So I suppose sometimes some of my people may be seem angry or confront. They may seem confrontational, but it's not it's the passion of saying, well, now our voice is starting to be heard. We want to tell you things. We want to share things. But we also need you to acknowledge the past first. So sustainability, we were fabulous at sustainability. If we weren't, we would never have survived. But we will need to bring some of those practices again to the forefront. And now, so we say with our voice, we need people to listen to us more, how we, you know, we worked with mother and it's not designing with country it's learning with country okay so another question we've had uh is do we lock it in a glass cabinet or let everyone have a paintbrush i love this one yes it's great isn't it so it it, it goes on to further sort of say, how do we balance respect for cultural heritage and preservation with enabling an ancient culture to contemporize? We are not a museum. We do not belong in a museum or behind glass. We are the oldest living culture in the world. 
it is, as I said before, living cultural heritage. And I say, um, yeah, don't, don't, I'm not saying to give you a paintbrush, but to listen, but we need to grow together on this um, to still show respect. You want to do immersion into culture and have that experience of the immersion. For to be in a glass cabinet just means you just get to look and probably tap on the glass. For us, the balance is to be able to immerse yourself in that experience. Once again, see, hear, touch, smell. People want to be able to feel our spiritual connection. They want to learn more about the history of our past and our present. So putting in a glass cabinet, no. It just means telling those stories, but at the same time showing respect, preserving them as well. Listen and understanding as we grow together. And we've got to remember some of these stories may change over time because they evolve when more comes forward. Because I said other times we weren't allowed to share our stories and that. So, for example, in the truth-telling treaty here in Victoria, stories are emerging about the treatment, but more stories are being shared about how we lived, et cetera, and the culture. And I think that statement leads into the next question quite well, because there is another question that is posing research or engagement. Uh, These may be conflicting. How do you progress the design intent? Is every project case by case? So in, in other words, through the through through the conversation, we always find potentially, as you were saying, new things and 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 things sort of are brought to the uh, brought to the forefront uh, through the engagement. But you know, how does that work when it's conflicting? So, Ooh, okay, both go together. When you let's just give an example of this research. When people want to research something, let's say they go onto Google or whatever, they may say. Do Aboriginal people like the colour yellow? So you put that criteria in and you probably get, yes, they do, and then probably come up and bring up the Aboriginal flag has yellow in it. Um, Do Aboriginal people do dot paintings? Yes, all Aboriginal people do dot paintings and all these dot paintings will come up. But you get a generalisation when you do your research because you're putting in the criteria you want to know when we do the engagement we're narrowing it down getting that first-hand knowledge from the traditional owner from the elder from community so it's like saying you'll find what you want when you do your research but you'll know more of the truth and add more richness by doing the engagement does that sort of narrow it down to 100 percent, and 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 i'd sort of explain it as well as a designer if you're trying to if you're trying to represent place then yes you can uh i'm in perth then you can create a space or something that reflects perth but if you engage and you understand exactly that specific place in perth and as you were talking earlier about listening and understanding deeper understanding of that place and then having the stories that relate specifically to that place then you're not going to learn that off 
the internet or research you need to have those from and and it is an oral history as you noted before and so without talking and without having these conversations we're never going to understand uh the specific nature of of the uh, of of the space that we're designing in yeah so it's it's case by case i mean as i said i always get you know, when you talk about artworks, people go, Kat, can you do a dot painting? And I go, if I hear that one more time, I'll do a dot painting on your head in a minute because it's not relevant to Ngunnawal people. It's not relevant to people in Victoria where it's more linear lines. And things like they talk about, oh, you must have this certain gum tree. You've got to have a gum tree here. And you go, well, this gum tree did not exist in this place, in this country. Or they'll go, you know, when I go and see people do presentations and they put it to traditional owners and I go, I wish I'd saw that first because they'll put up, you know, a picture of Uluru and I go, but we're not there. Uluru is not in Victoria. I'm sorry, you know. Or they'll put, um, uh, what is it, the 12 apostles? They used to call them piglets or something. And they'll put it in for, let's say, um, and I go, that is on someone else's country. Eastern Mar. So it's time, it's place. So we narrow it down and learn stories of this particular place from the traditional owners, elders, and community. Definitely. As I said, you type research is you type in what you want to hear, what you want to see. And I think in, in projects that I've worked on before. It goes down to that level as well, that if you're trying to represent a place, particularly if you're trying to uh, help a connection to that space, if you then bring in stone from China or you bring in uh, stone from a different country, it could mm. just be, like you say, literally only a few kilometres away, but it's a different country. Yes. Then you're not enhancing and working with developing a connection to that specific place uh likewise with plants if you're using a native plants you could be using a native plant but it could be from the other side of the country uh and and therefore to be endemic to be of place we need to be a lot more careful about how we use our native planting to be more specific and more endemic and looking at, at how we we can kind of incorporate that within our process and also like you say ask ask if it's all right to use a different stone ask if it's okay to bring sand yeah. for you know it, we 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 created a a dance circle mm. in a project uh, a dancing circle for celebration and coming together uh, and and, yeah. and it also formed a bit of a yarning circle as well and we were looking for the right sand to put in it. We literally got different bags of sand and sent it to our engagement group for them to, to feel and touch. And we drew a map to say exactly where the, the, the sand was coming from to, to, to mm. confirm it was from country. It was from the, the right country, the right place. And it had the right texture. It had the right feeling. And, you know, I think it's about the level that we go to sometimes in in trying to uh, engage and create that that connection to place and uh, and uh, and country, but also the respect that we go through that kind of process yeah. of even checking the materiality that we're using, sort of thing. Thank you. That is so important because by you taking a part of country and putting it on someone else's country, 
you are taking their ancestors off that country, putting them on someone else's country. And this is what we're trying to get you to think about. So it's as simple as that. And when we say, you know, the plants, people go, oh, you know, your native plants. And they go, be aware you have native plants, indigenous plants. So plants that we use as, you know, countries, our chemist, it's our, our supermarket, it is our university, it is our, you know, Bunnings, etc. We only took from country and used from country because that's our spiritual connection. When you take it to someone else's country, it's hurting us. So someone said to me in the city, well, how do we know, you know, what sort of things? And I go, one of the best things you can do is if you're, um, somewhere where they're doing a big dig excavation, go and have a look if you can see that how deep it is in that and you can see all the different, you know, you might get to see different ochres, colours of country in that and what it looks like in that. It gives you a bit of a clue to what to look for as well. Um, and as I said, ask first. We know a lot of now our Indigenous plants do not survive on country because of climate change. We work together where we get hybrids, you know, or something that's similar. Sometimes we say they're a similar colour, but once again, always ask first because it's different for each country and what they expect. But I like how you're saying, please ask about bringing from another country what you bring on country. And we did that for the Werribee. And we got resource boulders from country. And then another project, we ask permission. So that transport, even if you get permission, the transporting should be done respectfully. Yeah, and it, and it is. It's about asking, having that conversation. There might be a process or a protocol that that, that you can do to yes. transfer. It may be a smoking ceremony in regards to respecting the ancestors from one Thanks. place before it's moved to another, uh, et cetera. Mm. And we've done that. Uh, I've done that on project or I haven't done it I've witnessed it done on projects uh here uh when we've uh when we uh when transplanting trees uh that have just come from you know one place to another to kind of uh help that tree uh re-establish because you're taking it as you as you were describing before it's it's rooted in the ground and you're lifting it and you're moving it and you know that's that sort of spiritual connection and that uh that ability to bring in a process that sort of aids in the health of that tree, but also the the, the health in the connection uh, and the uh, the spiritual connection for the uh, you know the traditional owners and the elders that were involved in the project. Yeah, and have a think about it. Why are you if you're you're doing the in thing now is do a, you know an indigenous garden with you know bush tucker bush medicine, which is what I do a lot of. But when people ask me to design one for a project, I'm always thinking, what is the purpose of it? Why do you really want one? You know, for educational, fantastic. For the new buzzword, was it, um, oh, I can't even think it was M M uh, entertainment with education. And, and I was going, what? And I'm going, we don't want just to put plants in there for them to die because that, that, that's hurtful. We want to, they want to have a purpose. So you don't want to plant like a hundred uh, chocolate lilies just because now you get a, the smell comes every now and then they go, oh, cool, but to have them die, you know, you're going to put them where you can actually use it. Is there a cafe or a survey that they can actually use it? Is it an educational piece that people will get to see, touch, smell, and even taste it? 
don't just bring it on country just as a tick box. Say, look, look what we've done, a native or an Indigenous planting. Make sure it's got purpose. Spend money elsewhere on community. And there's, there's so many connections, I think, that we don't even understand that is even a possibility sometimes before you start these conversations. For example, a lot of locations and sites uh, on country are sometimes female or male. You know what I mean? They're, so so if you have uh, objects within that space, say, for example, uh, I don't know whether it's the same across the different uh, mobs, as you say, language, language groups or countries, the... A women's site here, if you put an emu in that area, would be seen as that's a male symbol and in, in, in a female location. Uh, there are different plants as well that are more associated with women's business, if you like, uh, because they had medicinal purposes for, for women culturally. So, you know, I think it's about as long as we're having those conversations, those things will be discussed and teased out. And as long as we're sharing our decisions and our processes, and it's about just even if you don't think it's something that somebody might have an interest in, still talk about it because you'll suddenly find out that, oh, that thing that was not related to this at all is totally culturally inappropriate because it's a male totem or something within a, a women's a, a traditionally women's site. Exactly. And this is where we're saying where that open dialogue and the question of us first comes into it. So in these co-design I say co-decide design meetings. We can, you know, in those ask those questions. Is it okay we can do this? And if the elders are not too sure, they'll go find out. And that's the whole point of that cultural journey you take with us when we have those, you know, those sessions. But you, you bang on about that. People forget women's and men's business and how different elements pertain to, you know, culturally stipulated women's. Um, business, cultures in men's business and initiation and everything. And if you really want to be respectful, then you need to know a bit more about what you're putting in there. Is it going to be disrespectful to the culture, to the people? You don't want to do that. So it's just the simplest things and people just think it's just a tree. No, it's not to us. Or it's just a boulder. No, it's not just to us. So different elements have and it's in every every mob will have something different ask i've got a couple more questions i'm going to read now uh they're taken from uh i suppose more of a a perspective of logistics looking through uh engagement within a project uh the first one i've got here is how can we make space to meaningfully design with country in the context of a bid or design competition when often a huge portion of the design is locked in before meaning, meaningful engagement with the traditional owners? Or is this asking too much? It seems like it shouldn't be too much to ask for some of our biggest, most important public projects. Yeah, this, this comes up a lot, especially when I'm on tenders. And it's hard because, as we all, I always say, we need to engage first. How do you design something when you don't even know about, you know, country or protocols or what we can and can't do? And the timeframes within construction and infrastructure are just so out there that there's no room really for proper full-on engagement. So 
when I'm on a project and it comes to where they've got to put a design in before you even have, you know, contact with traditional owners because you're not allowed to for competition phase, it's being able to engage with people like myself who have been privy to so much beautiful stories and knowledge of different cultures, of different mob around Australia where we can give you snippets of what we've been told. So it's more like... Um, a bit of a background first. So it's like that paint by numbers. So we can give you a few of those numbers to paint in. So we give that design so that the design can be layered once we have that contact, that true traditional owner engagement, so that things can be built within it as well. The storylines can be built within it. Certain changes can be built within it because we understand that some of the structure has to already be in the tender before it even goes to traditional owners. We get that. But there's certain things you can add to give it that cultural narrative, to give it that cultural input. We, we've we also done it in a different way as well, where we've done as, a, as an art uh, workshop. So we've just, we, we've invited artists for a workshop scenario, spent a day, uh, kind of sharing kind of ideas and talking, coming up with suggestions so that if there's a plethora of opportunities, uh, even if it's not necessarily kind of, you know, you know you're going to develop it further uh, as you go through the, through the process and the project. But Yeah, it, but make sure you're not just throwing it in at the end just for the hell of it. No, it has to happen. absolutely. So, yeah, think about how you can layer your design up from that and that, that's where you get the you know you paint by numbers in the end you go oh it's a fruit basket good now we know what it was supposed to be and I think um you know it, it, and a friend of an architectural friend who said it it seems like it speaks to you and I go it does the the, the building or structure will speak to you what it wants to become because it's part of country it is a living thing on country it's an extension of country now and that's where sometimes people fall over they just go Nope, it's just a structure, just a building. It's not. So interesting. I, I like that. It's a, it's a good question. It's really hard for us, people like me, to come in to try to fix some of these things up because I've come in at a stage where they've put all the plans in and had no engagement whatsoever and they've gone, oh, crap. And I go, it's okay. You've now admitted that, yep, we haven't done it. Let's put that to the past. Let's work out how we can move forward and give some respect to your structure, to your building. And there's always a way. So just don't think, oh, we haven't done it, we're not going to do it. Please still engage. And the next question we had uh, is very similar. When it comes to listening to Australia's First Nations people and fostering genuine engagement, towards advancing reconciliation efforts. The phrase, nothing about us without us, is important to remember, practice and embrace. However, this place is quite a burden on First Nations people, a big ask for less than 4% of the population. How can non-Indigenous listeners better respect the time, energy, culture and tradition of First Nations people on the journey to voice, treaty Ooh. and truth? Once again, ask first. Think laterally and in a partnership way. And this is something that always comes through. Um, 
Oh, I suppose not every community will want to participate. We must be respectful. Um, remember, our knowledge has been lost and we're starting to regain, retell and share. Um, when I say not everyone wants to participate because it causes, brings up the trauma again of the past sometimes and not all want to engage to share that because there are some stories and cultural elements that in our culture we don't share, not even with other mob. Sometimes, as you said, we share things with women within our mob, women's business only. Sometimes we share, the men will share men's things with men. So when it comes to how do we respectfully listen and about that raw truth and treaty, give us the time to voice our, what we want to say because we haven't had that before, to listen. And as I said, listening is not just with your ears. And sometimes you brought it before. It's not going to take 30 minutes to an hour. Sometimes it may take months to really understand and get that truth-telling, you know, and the voice of the treaty to come through. We don't, we didn't have that, you know, the clock to tell us when. There's time frames. We sat down and it could have been for days, for months, till things were resolved. Some things never get resolved. Different mobs, different elders have different experiences to share. And different sites as well have different impacts, as you were saying earlier, like different association with different, uh, you know, trauma. Uh, so, and for, for one group over another or for one family over another. So, yeah, respectfully listen and, and, and understand that. And it, and it can be a burden because I think too many people assume we're going to have those answers for you and have them there and then and now. We're a collective. Not one person makes that one decision. And sometimes it'll go back to the board to discuss. And they might meet till the next two weeks, three weeks, and even then it might be resolved so that you may have to wait longer. Uh, the next question is, is it an oversimplification to suggest there is a huge crossover with caring for country and environmentally sustainable design? Or is this an opportunity to leverage already well-established sustainability aspirations on projects to broaden to include caring for country? It's a real big thing. Everything is, every meeting I go to, every tender I'm on, it's like the eggshell fact. Everyone goes, oh, we've got to care for country. How do we put this in our design? How do we put this with the Green Star Indigenous Principles or the Green Star Rating, caring for country, healing country? Guess what? We really can't heal country because she's too fractured. When we say we cut ourselves, by accident, and we go, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? You have to get it stitched up or band, put a Band-Aid on it, and after a while they go, look, it's healed. We go, oh, yeah, it's back to normal. Can we do that to country now? Sadly, we can't. So we have to look at ways of working with country, our mother, collaborating with our mother, learning from mother, to say this caring for country 
needs to be more sustainable. Are there projects out there that are being more sustainable and using sustainable practices, meaning working with country? Yes, there are. Yes, there are. They still have a long way to go. You'd say they're trying to work with country, trying to solve some of the issues that we're having, that we're adding to country's woes, so to speak. So we can talk about, you know, simple things such as the use of colour and texture within buildings, with, you know, within houses, etc. because colours can sometimes give you that warmth and that cooling effect. We can use different types of materials, but materials that are sourced sustainably. You know, over here in Victoria, I notice that I always see now a lot of log trucks come through and I always go, oh, my heart aches because we must be cutting down so many trees because I've never seen it before in my travels. And I go, oh, sustainable agriculture. But are we upcycling material? Are we reusing material? You have the use of water, recycled water, rainwater. And I've sit on a few projects on a project with um, Hassel at the moment where it's not only a cooling effect, but it also captures the rainwater to make rain gardens. So when you have those big days of rain, you know, it fills up these beautiful rain wells, but also you can have plants in there that, you know, are tolerant to all that. And then when we have days of hardly any rain, it slowly drains out. So it's utilising recycled rainwater, but also using the rainwater's cooling effects. Another big thing some companies and buildings are doing really well is lighting. And this is something that we need to get better at, though, because lighting, we tend to be like, you know, everything's up in light, so many lights everywhere, and everyone goes, oh, yay, wow. What you've, you've forgotten is it does affect migration patterns of birds and other wildlife. And they're starting to die out as well because of all this unnatural lighting. You know, have a think about what can we do to minimise that, to even stop it if possible. Wind, as I said before, wind, we use wind as a cooling effect as well within buildings, you know, within that natural airflow coming through. We use the sun, whether we where we face our buildings, where we face our plant life, where we face people in the building, the sun can play a major role in heating and in natural lighting. And the biggest step I think a lot of people in design are looking at now is the use of the roof space, whereas you know, we fly over in Melbourne and other cities and all we see is there's grey buildings and nothing there. Using roof space, using these gardens and, and using biophilia to act as cooling, to act as heating as well, So, which is what we used to do. We used to use whatever we had around us to, you know, to keep us warm but also to reflect the sun. And for one project, I know with Hassel we did at one train station, is we put in a sort of a biodiversity section up top of the station where it was encouraging the golden sun moth, a new habitat for it because it was dying out, so it's encouraging it to come back. And the bogon moth, which everyone says, what's a bogon moth? And we go, bogon moths come from Nunnawal country, ACT, comes all the way down to here and all the way into New South Wales. It was a staple diet and it's been there thousands. They're not like that anymore. So we're saying without the biophilia, without the trees we start to plant in our designs, things start to die out. When you start planting trees in that, you'll probably notice, oh, 
I can hear a bird. We can hear birds before. Oh, wow, we've got cicadas. Oh, we've got the bees. It's great because you're giving them back their homes, their habitat. So maybe when we're designing what we take from country, we give back as well. So we may not be able to do that within the built form, but somewhere we can then plant more trees, plant more native, more Indigenous plants that suit the climate to keep country healing, what you term as healing. Um, so there are great examples out there. Passive house uh, is a really good one to look at. And even just, you know, small architecture firms doing housing and now taking advantage of our ways and how we learned from country, how we lived with country, coexisted, and putting that into their housing now. You know, living in caves and stuff like that is just phenomenal. But taking those ideas of how nature provided for you, cooled you, heated you, that's what we should be doing. Healing country, what you deem as healing country, does need to be number one at all times. Sustainability needs to be number one at all times. They go together. Yeah, and that is a whole nother podcast. Mother is talking to us in so many ways, but once again, we're not listening. So in design, when they say, how do we put caring for country in design, listen to country with every sense and how do we make it part of country so it works with country. It's not going to damage it any further. What materiality can we use that can be repurposed? For example, one of the projects out here um, on the rail south along toward ponds, unfortunately some trees had to be cut down and we go, Everyone on that team is fabulous on Geelong Alliance. We say, where can we, what can we do, Kat? These are your ancestors. Okay, they're not mine, but they're on people. Some of those trees we repurpose and built yarning circles in different areas where people are coming together and they're talking now about things. We hand them back to different areas as natural habitats. They're not just, you know, think about what you're doing before you throw it away. 100%. I'm a great believer in no tree should leave sight. Yes, it either stays in place or it, uh, it even you know, like you say, its habitat, it's mulched. It it then contributes back to the ecosystem of that place and will find its way into the. Oh into I love the it. I love it. And as I said, <laughs> sustainability never was like the Mickey Mouse thing. Now it's so important in all designs. We need to find that has to be number one. How you design, how is it sustainable? How does it keep that heartbeat of country going? Uh, and okay, I think we've got a final question here. Uh, so, so Kat, in your job, you must have lots of challenging conversations, which we have touched upon at how we can have these different conversations. Some of them will be challenging on topics, on topics that have the potential to get quite heated which from my experience, I can say some do. <laughs> How can you help us and better have these conversations, but also how do how you have conversations with relatives as well so that we can take our learnings from you sort of thing? So there's an older generation out there who have very different understanding and around topics like the voice, which is, you know, a prevalent issue right now and in the forefront of people's minds. And it may be discussed around the dinner table on a Sunday afternoon or whatever. How can we have some of these conversations uh, and what advice would you give us? 
Yeah, courageous conversations, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. I was always taught to once always show respect, but truth telling. And people, we always say, we used to, our old ways were sitting down where we faced each other and we could talk about anything. You may not get things resolved, but we speak from the heart as well. In my role, I have to try to remain factual, not emotional because I have a cultural role to play, a business role to play, and sometimes the two headbutt. And I have, and it breaks my heart that sometimes I have to think about business before culture because culture is so important to me. When discussing the voice, which comes up a lot, I always say to people, it's like anything new. People fear change when they don't understand it or where they don't have the facts in front of them. So, I mean, there's plenty of factual information out there about the voice and what it is. And as I said, I sit back and I go, you know, sometimes it's hard for me to understand because we've never had the opportunity to say how we feel, the opportunity to manage our lives, so to speak, and what's important to us and how it's going to affect us. So. Really, you're always going to have people who will put up that barrier. And the only way I see forward is be honest, be truthful, and to be aware that some people are just not going to understand and will not vote based on facts but on fear. And that's the hard part. And all through the generations, all the different things, the first one, referendum, 1967, you know, about for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders being able to vote. That was just diabolical. Not all referendums, you know, get get a vote. So we were lucky to get that. Before that, we were previously on the flora and fauna list. That's what we were called. We weren't human. But, yeah, it's just keeping it open and honest. And as I said, it's, it's a hard one, but maybe direct them to factual information where, you know, they can read up and make that informed choice for themselves. But as I said, people have their own opinions. They're entitled to those rights as well. Thank you. Yeah, I 100% agree in the respect that, yeah, just tell your own truth and you can't always change somebody else's mind. Yep. So read the room. <laughs> That's been my role. <laughs> I mean... You get called a lot, you've got to have thick skin on what I do, but at the same time, it's the smallest wins, the barimbaluk, which means, you know, many footprints. We are many footprints, but one big one can change. This conversation is also an extension of the journey we are on as part of the uh, Reconciliation Action Plan that we're doing. And part of our commitment to respectfully listen to, learn and advocate for Australia's first people. So this has been a wonderful step on that journey as well, having this conversation. I, I think what some of the things that I've taken from this uh, conversation is truth telling and speaking from the heart. Something you've just said, uh, Kat, and uh, that is so important. And and just staying in the room together, just talking and having the conversation. And I know we keep using that term, just 
keep talking. But it's as simple as that, really, isn't it? Yep. There are complexities to it. And do not get me wrong, we all understand that. But the simple takeaway is that we should just keep talking and move forwards together. I would like to make a personal thank you to Kat for your generosity and participation in this incredibly important topic. So thank you. Pleasure. And thank you to uh, our listeners, uh, wherever they might be around the world. And thank you for their feedback and all of the questions that they so kindly sent in uh, prior to our conversation today. I'm Hannah Galloway, and you've been listening to an episode of Hassle Talks. This episode was produced by Prue Vincent and myself in collaboration with Hassle's Cultural Engagement Working Group, with particular thanks to Rubina Cook, Kirsten Thompson, Adam Davis, and Liam Cridland for their time and guidance.